This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. And as always, I thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. Our guest this morning is an alum of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, who has had an outstanding career as a writer and editor and author since his graduation from this august institution and has made quite a life for himself as a freelance writer doing all those things. Carson Vaughn joins us. Been a while. Great to have you back in the building this week. Thanks for having me here, Rick. Now, you were, uh, as an undergrad, somebody who really wanted to study journalism and and do journalistic pieces, and you've certainly done a lot of that, but your path to getting there wasn't exactly a straight line. I mean, you were teaching for a few years, and you've done a lot of freelance work. Why don't you you kind of walk us through where your career has gone and the time since you've been here? Sure. So after I graduated from uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with my undergrad degree, I went straight to UNCW, the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And I did a three-year uh, master's program in creative nonfiction writing. I got my MFA. And, um, you know, I think I did that because I knew I wanted to do long-form journalism. I was also fairly certain that a daily newsroom was not the best place for me. <laughs> um, and there's not exactly like a clear career path when you go that route. So I kind of, you know, stumbled my way along for a little while. I had three years to hone my writing in North Carolina. And then after that, I dove straight into freelance, which was, you know, hectic and wild and didn't pay great in the beginning. But now I've been doing it almost a decade and it's gotten a little better every year. Still a roller coaster, but I've been able to finally do the writing that I kind of set out to do. You know, I finally wrote and published my first book and I'm under contract for the second book and I'm freelancing still on a regular basis. So it's mostly working out, you know, (laughs) I wish I had better health insurance and uh, a gym membership, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll take what I can get. One thing at a time. One so. thing at a time. The uh, And there's so many things there I want to unpack with you about that. But I, before we get too far past your university experience, uh, the teaching part of it, because you did teach some courses as a grad assistant, correct? That's right. There. Yeah. What, yeah. And it, which kind of classes did you teach? They were all uh, nonfiction classes, creative nonfiction classes, which was great. Um, you know, as opposed to the journalism school, it wasn't all reportage, but I was very happy to have the undergrads in North Carolina do some interviews and some reporting. And that was kind of one segment of the creative nonfiction class. And then there was, you know, more personal essays and memoir and that kind of thing too. But yeah, I, I mean, I really liked teaching in undergrad and maybe I'll do that again someday, who knows, but um, I certainly don't regret that time. I think most teachers, if they're honest, will tell you that they learn, if not as much, at least nearly as much from teaching as they, as they hope they're imparting to their students. What did teaching the writing process help inform you about your own writing? Yeah, I mean, teaching nonfiction was kind of great because it forced you to sort of deconstruct (laughs) the writing, you know, it taught you what not to do. And maybe more importantly, it taught you how to articulate what not to do, you know, and so there would be times when I would be editing a student essay, and it wasn't working. And, you know, I think they probably knew it wasn't working too, but it was in my job to articulate exactly why it wasn't working, why this lead didn't work, or this ending didn't work, or why this dialogue wasn't working. And just the process of going through and teasing it out in student papers made my own reporting and my own essays better. The um, As I was walking past the, the newspaper stand uh, this morning on the way in, I noticed a publication there that uh, 
you largely helped create when you were here as an undergraduate, <laughs> and that is the Dailier, which uh, came about as an interest you've had in satirical writing that dates back to when you were still in school through K-12. Kind of walk us through that process because students on campus now who see that ought to know a little bit about the kind of the struggle you went through to get that that new form of expression up and going. Yeah, I appreciate you remembering all that, Rick. It feels kind of like forever ago. Uh, I had kind of on a whim applied for an internship at The Onion in college and got it. Um, you know, and I had been reading that publication when I was in high school and always loved that form of like satirical news and saw a vacancy at you know, in Lincoln for that kind of thing. So my friends and I started the Dailyer Nebraskan, which, I mean, we really just ripped off what the Onion was doing and did it at a local level. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and it seemed to work, and it's still going strong so far as I can tell today, which, you know, over a decade later seems kind of crazy to think about. Um, but we love doing it, and I'm glad it's still here. I will admit that I haven't done that kind of writing, I think, since I left undergrad. But I really do think there is a place for it on college campuses, and I love it, whether it's here in Lincoln or anywhere else. I love seeing a college campus satirical newspaper. And you, uh, were you in Chicago for the internship? No, that was when it was still in New York. Oh, New so, York, yeah. okay, because we were able to take our learning community students through their offices in Chicago yep. a few years ago on a couple different occasions, and uh, I think it was eye-opening for the students to see the difference between what you see in the printed page or online now with ClickHole and stuff as well, but the editorial process and the very business-like back house of that that makes the lighthearted satirical stuff look really easy <laughs> when there's a huge process behind it, which I'm sure you learned in the process of creating the daily. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you describe that, I was thinking of all the hours we weren't sleeping when we were in undergrad here. I mean, what I thought was going to be just like a fun endeavor ended up eating <laughs> all four years of my college career. You know, like we were not sleeping because we were dedicated to telling what we thought were funny jokes in retrospect, they're probably pretty horrible jokes, but uh, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun, but it was a ton of work. Yeah. But as a bridge into the, the, I will say more serious writing, but the, but the stuff that you've been yeah. undertaking for the last decade or so, I was rereading before we did this interview a, a piece you'd written for the Chronicle, uh, an op-ed piece years ago about the importance of student voices on campus. And you drew a really interesting parallel between campus preachers mm. and the kind of attraction that they get from students and the kind of engagement that they get and how you almost envied that as a faculty member, hoping that or wishing there was that kind of engagement sometimes in academic course rooms. So what did that infuse in you about what we need to do to, to draw people in in terms of good writing and good presentation? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to remember back to that piece. I remember writing it. I think a big part of that particular story for me was this idea of being able to like have a constructive dialogue around controversy. So, you know, I'm no bigger fan of any campus preacher than anyone else probably is. But I remember at the time when I was in grad school in North Carolina, my peers in the creative writing school were in a big hurry to get this guy booted off campus, which seemed ironic to me considering that we were all sitting there trying to practice creative writing and express our voices. And it just seemed like maybe a better move than censoring somebody is learning how to, you know, either ignore it if we disagree or engage with it in a way that is constructive for everybody around us. And I think that has informed my writing whenever I go at something that maybe is controversial. You know, you're going to shut down that dialogue pretty quickly if you debase it right away or attack it in the wrong way. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's helped me become a more nuanced writer to think about the ways we engaged with controversy when we were running the Daily or anything else after that. Right. Well, and certainly in some of your writing that's that's transpired since, uh, you and, and Travels with Your Wife have uh, encountered in the campaign trail and elsewhere uh, groups that might have been perceived by some as being uh, antagonistic or even hostile, but you never you never paused a moment to wade in and, and engage in conversation. I've always admired that about you. Yeah, thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. I mean, I there are plenty of writers who are much more confrontational than I am, and they do a great job of it. That's just never who I was, to be honest. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that I don't want to engage, because I certainly do, and I think I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not the first one to go on Twitter and burn down a bridge, you know, <laughs> and I, I think that's served me well for the most part so far. The kinds of stories that you get, and you've certainly written for an impressive array of, of publications, um, sort of run the gamut. Are there any that sort of feel like this is my wheelhouse, this is the kind of story that I that I, I think I do really well or perhaps better than some other kinds of things? Yeah, you know. Recently, I've been really fortunate to be uh, writing for the Flatwater Free Press back here in Nebraska and Omaha. Um, I was good friends with Matthew Hansen before they got it started, and that's been a... Another J-School graduate. That's right, another J-School grad. And that's been great for me on multiple levels, not just because it's great to work with an editor who you already have a strong relationship with, but, you know... For so long, when I started that like freelance journey at a grad school, you're chasing not just the money <laughs> to be crass, but you're chasing like, you know, I had always wanted to write for the New Yorker. And so I spent years trying to get into the New Yorker. And I finally did that. But what you realize when you get there is that, you know, a big name might be great for like padding your resume, but it doesn't always mean, you know, great things for your pocketbook. I was getting paid better by places that you know, your average Joe had never heard of than I was the New York Times or the New Yorker. And so I've been trying to, as my freelance career kind of matures, I guess, get better about not just chasing like the glossy title that pads your own ego, (laughs) you know, and go to the places where you have stronger relationships with your editors and where the audience engages more with your work. And so the Flatwater Free Press has been great for me because I, you know, try as I might to write about other places, end up writing about Nebraska all the time anyway. They're great at letting me like fall into a rabbit hole and chase these more obscure Nebraska stories that not every publication would be interested in. So I really enjoyed writing for them recently. Have you found that when you did get something published and let's say go back to the New Yorker since you referenced it, does that open doors to other interviews when people say, oh, he's, he's got this New Yorker credential on here? Money aside, does it at least perhaps give you an entree you might not have had otherwise. It absolutely does. And I certainly don't, you know, regret the time no, I spent I climbing up to that place. But yeah, I mean, even shooting in, you know, a new pitch to an editor at some other great publication, the fact that The New Yorker was suddenly tied to my name, that meant I was getting responses all of a sudden. You know, I would, I used to pitch dozens of times a week and hear back once or twice, you know, the the stats were not great in my favor. (laughs) Once I was able to say previously published in the New Yorker, suddenly I was hearing back from people. That didn't always mean they were saying yes to my pitch, but they felt like I was legitimate all of a sudden. Sure. Now you've come out of college and you've gotten your advanced degree and now you're pursuing the the freelance uh, sort of lifestyle. What were the, when you sit down with your legal pad or probably online, Mm -hmm. And did the pluses and minuses, because certainly there's a lot of 
there are a lot of cool things about being freelance in terms of writing your own timeline and you're your own boss and all that. But there's certainly, as you mentioned, there's insurance, there's paid time off, there's other kinds of things. And now suddenly you had uh, a partner you were traveling with, yep. become your wife. What was it that finally tipped the scale toward walking away from the guaranteed 40-hour-a-week job with benefits and doing the freelance life? Yeah, I think it's really important, well, first of all, to ask that question, so thanks for asking, but I try to be very upfront every time I have this conversation in saying that I was lucky enough to get out of undergrad and grad school without any student debt. And I think had I graduated like a lot of my peers did from you know, the MFA program, 60K in debt, I would have applied immediately to a newsroom or a magazine and gone that 40 hour a week route. I was lucky enough to not have that debt already. So I, you know, gave myself a couple of years to give it a shot. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy in the beginning and it wasn't easy in the beginning, but I didn't already have that, you know, I didn't feel saddled with debt already. And that was a huge, a huge thing for me. I could give myself the time because of that. Um, and then the other thing was just, I knew that writing was never a fun process for me if I wasn't writing what I wanted to write, <laughs> you know, and I was always afraid that if I got stuck at a daily newsroom, you know, the life of like a state house reporter was going to drive me out of journalism pretty quick. What I always liked doing was, you know, that deep historical cultural research. I loved being in the archives. I loved doing that kind of thing. I loved trailing somebody for weeks at a time. And that's just not like a life that your daily news reporter gets. And so, I felt like if I was going to stay writing at all, I needed to do it the way that I knew how to find passion. Well, and one of the things you got to do from this, because it's always reminded me in, in following your career, it's reminded me a lot of of uh, the late Charles Kuralt from CBS, the on the road sort of thing, because you got in the trailer and you and your wife just took off and traveled and and saw things and looked for stories while you were out there. That to me seems... Like that was a fascinating time in your life and probably still is. It was, yeah. I mean, we miss that daily. We still have the trailer, but we have <laughs> no great excuse to be using it at the moment. But I mean, that trip was eye-opening in a million different ways. And I was lucky to like, you know, I kept publishing a lot from the road that year. I think I published more from the road than I did the year prior to that when I was just in an apartment <laughs> reporting in Lincoln. So it actually worked out pretty well as like a career advancement sort of thing. I wrote a travel series for USA Today while we were doing it. And it just exposed me to a lot more. And it was always that, I mean, that kind of travel and that sort of chase was what I always liked about the reporting anyway. So it all just felt like it was scratching the right edge for me at the time. Do you prefer the stories that, uh, do you prefer researching and writing the stories that are longitudinal to take a long time to research and develop and maybe cover a long period of time? Or I've also seen some of your work, like I was pulling up some of the recent headlines from your website. There was the one about um, from the uh, July of last year on the film that was going around yeah. about uh, sex ed and stuff in the classroom, which was a little more of a traditional news, one-off yeah. kind of story. Yeah. Either one of those idioms more pleasurable to you, or do you like being able to mix it up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I always liked about the freedom of freelancing. You know, like, if I do too many, you know, travel stories in a row and start to feel like I'm not flexing my reporting chops enough, then I can pivot around and write a story like the one you just mentioned. So I like having the flexibility to go back and forth. Um, I don't really know if I like one better than the other, to be honest with you. I have 
found over the years <laughs> that the stories people seem to like the most, and I'm not sure what this says about me or my writing, but the stories that people comment the most on are the ones that I personally felt like I spent the less, like the least amount of time on. I've written like a couple travel essays for Outside Magazine, and those are always really fun. And it's not like they didn't take any work, but you know, the last one I wrote was about like my friends and I like drinking beer on a river <laughs> in a cattle tank, you know, and people love that. And that kind of reporting, reporting, you know, in quotes, <laughs> you know, I don't know what that says, but people loved that story. That was certainly easier to write than, you know, doing weeks of research on a documentary about sex ed in Nebraska. Yeah. Right. And along the way, you picked up enough information in at least one of your stories that you decided to make it into a book. Tell us about how the uh, Zoo Nebraska book came about. Yeah, that was um, started as my undergraduate thesis here at UNL, and um, I took it with me to grad school, and it became, you know, I fleshed the whole book out over three years there and um, finally found an agent and sold it in 2018, and it published in 2019, but... um, it was about this small town of Royal Nebraska, 65 people, and they had a little highway roadside zoo that grew wildly out of control and kind of took the whole town down with it. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. I, I, I hate, I hate the, the, the cliched, I couldn't put it down, but I couldn't put that <laughs> one down. And I think because I've always, I've enjoyed zoos, uh, you, uh, you did a, you walked the tightrope really well there of being able to almost put us inside the monkeys' heads about this and see things. Obviously, you couldn't get interviews with them, yeah. but but uh, it was really a good job of being able to see the story from a 360 perspective on that one. I appreciate that, Rick. I mean, the, the big thing for me on that story, I knew when I started out, I wanted it to be, you know, a community story. I wasn't, like, interested in the novelty of, ha-ha, look at these small town farmers who shot four chimpanzees on the highway, you know, like that. I did not want to patronize that story in that kind of way, you know. And so as a result, (laughs) I spent 10 years reporting on a story that, you know, I think a long form magazine writer could have done a 4,000 word story on. Um, But it would have been a much different story. You know, I, I didn't want to do the topical. What about the book writing process appealed to you enough that, as you said at the top, you now have at least one more that's kind of in the works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I have this conversation with my other freelance friends quite a bit where the minute you start working on a book, you know, you'll get a couple months in and all you can do is fantasize about the freelance life and the quick paychecks and the, you know, quicker turnaround and whatever. But then you do that kind of quick turnaround long enough, and all you can do is fantasize about the longer <laughs> book project where you're not having to pitch editors daily. And so I kind of you know, oscillate back and forth between those two different versions of existence. But there is something that's really attractive, especially right now, as I'm wrapping up the freelance side of things and getting ready for book mode. One long, sustained project. Um, there's a freedom in that, too. You know, you get a kind of put blinders on and block out everything else and just dive into that rabbit hole as deep as you can. And that's kind of in the process I'm in right now. If you had to, I, I don't, uh, sort of the self-criticism of our, of our college, I don't know that we've always done as thorough a job as we could in teaching students how to pitch. We've gotten better at it over the last decade as more of us have done it ourselves. But uh, what, what have, did you find pitching comes to you easily uh, or did that take some a little bit of getting used to. It definitely took some getting used to. Um, but pitching is such a weird thing. You know, you'll talk to five editors and they'll tell you five 
radically different contradictory things about what they want to see in a pitch. You know, like the way it ends up working out for me is, you know, I've spent, I've spent an entire working week on an 800 word pitch and that's just the pitch that's unpaid. That's doing all the legwork just to prove that there's a story there. And then, you know, the final result, if it does get greenlit is, you know, 1600 words. (laughs) So your pitch was half the story, you know, other times, you'll get a 5,000-word story greenlit that you shot off some quick little perfunctory two-sentence, you know, la-di-da, <laughs> and, and that worked out too. So I would like to say that I've become an expert pitcher after 10 years, but it really depends on, I think, what you're after and what editor you're talking to. That's, yeah. you know, going back to, like, flat water. That's why it's really nice to have, you know, trusted relationships at different publications because you can kind of bypass some of that pitching process sometimes. As someone who's written a lot of, of freelance work, and I certainly, before this is over, want you to be able to plug your, your website because it's, it's, that's a real fun dive down a rabbit oh, hole to you. see all the different things you've done there. But um, when you look at some of those stories, are there some that you can't shake? That, they're, they're, that You finish the reporting and it's published and there's the story itself just sticks with you, for better or worse? Yeah, certainly. Um I mean, the first one that comes to mind is the story I wrote for The Guardian back in, I want to say 2017, 2018, about a guy named Gerhard Locke, the farm belt Fuhrer, or so he called himself, um, who was a neo-Nazi who was born and raised in Lincoln, essentially, and uh, became like the world's largest supplier of neo-Nazi propaganda. And that was just a, a bizarre, weird story. I profiled him for The Guardian and, you know, as you can imagine, hanging out with a neo-Nazi for an afternoon is not the most delightful thing in the world, but it's just I've never had an assignment like that where you essentially hang around a monster all day and try to truthfully report what that experience was like and you know whether or not to take this human seriously in the world. Um, short answer to that was, yeah, he still was a dangerous character and still is, presumably. I haven't followed him recently. but um, So that one certainly sticks with me. I'm just, I guess, because of the darkness of the whole thing. Um, but then there are others that, you know, stick with me just because every time I think of them, I think how fun the reporting was, you know, the, the cattle tanking on the middle loop river in the sand hills or going down the dismal river in a canoe with my wife. And, you know, they call it divorce river for a reason. <laughs> uh, you know, stories like that are also really fun. So I was like, was putting wallpaper up. It was supposed to be the challenge. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we might be terrible at that, too. <laughs> if you got down the river, you're still together. You're doing That's all right. right. I'm thinking of things like, I know you've done a couple stories about uh, the, the forest fire in the national Nebraska National Forest and seeing that kind of devastation, but then also seeing the renewal that always comes with a forest fire it must yeah. be both depressing and, and exhilarating at the same time. It is. I mean, that story was fascinating to me for you know, a number of reasons. One is that I grew up going to the Nebraska National Forest as a kid, so I had my own sort of sentimental attachment to the place. But the more you dive into that particular forest, because of its handmade artificial nature, there's just one question leads to another question leads to another question, and there isn't really a good answer for any of it at the moment. You know, how do you, you know, in this case, a quarter of the forest burned down, what is the appropriate next step for a forest that doesn't you know, that shouldn't be there (laughs) in the first place. I mean, it's the, you know, one of the largest hand-planted forests in the world, literally in the middle of the largest intact temperate grassland on earth. (laughs) So it's such a strange, bizarre ecosystem that even most Nebraskans, I think, don't know too much about. 
So yeah, I mean, that one's fun just because it's so complex. It's a contradiction on yeah. so many levels. Absolutely. Well, now the, so the book comes next, and that's it sounds like that's going to take you out of the, the sort of uh, routine freelance life for a while. Um, what's the projected wrap-up time on that? So my deadline is October 2024, and you know we'll see how close I get to hitting that deadline. I think it's doable. Um, it's a travelogue through the Nebraska Sandhills, which is kind of my home turf. And so I'll be traveling back from Chicago a lot in the next two years. And I'm excited about it. You know, it's, again, it's a part of the state that even those of us who grew up in it, I think don't know as much about it as we should, considering that it's 98% privately owned. We haven't had that much access to it. So I'm excited to kind of, you know, there have been several books written about the Sand Hills, but they've been from either a, a sort of academic perspective or a strictly environmental perspective. But there hasn't been that fun sort of adventure travelogue narrative written about this place that I dearly love, and I think a lot of other people do too. So I'm excited about it. And it's in, in many cases incredibly beautiful, which people who aren't from here say, "Is that possible in the Midwest?" And you go, "Yeah, yeah." You just yeah. gotta you gotta come take a look. So. <laughs> That's absolutely right. You've been here visiting with students this uh, this past week. What are what are some of the things that uh, the takeaways you want students to to uh, leave with after visiting with you? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's important for students to know you know, especially coming out of the J school, it's important for them to know what kind of storyteller they want to be and why they're telling stories in the first place. And there's a lot of different routes to travel. You know, I think that's one thing I didn't really realize when I entered the J school is that there's not just one path for a writer and not all of them are as clear as some of the others. Um, but there are options. And I think if you're a storyteller, then you're a storyteller and you're going to find a way to get it out. But, um, you know, I hope they search around and do a little research and figure out what the best way to utilize their particular skills is. Particularly given your uh, interest in, in lifelong career now, such that it is, uh, in being a freelancer, is there a certain amount of that that is coming to terms with facing your fears over not knowing where that next paycheck is coming from or when it might get there? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there certainly is. I mean, I would be lying to you if even now I said that if some great job fell on my lap tomorrow that I wouldn't consider it. You know, there's it's, it really is like a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year sort of thing. You know, when a new book project falls in your lap, that certainly helps. And that's the other, you know, the other half of the freelance versus book mode life is when you get the book on the line, suddenly, you know, it's almost like having a salary for a year that you can count on. The lump sum comes in, you know, all at once, and you can just focus for a little while. So now that I've got this book on the line, you know, that headspace is going to clear up for six months and then I'll start to get worried again. And, you know, it'll start all over. But right now I'm feeling okay about this life. And learning to develop confidence, but learning to develop um, being, I don't want to say frugal, but being able to put budgets together and, and pace yourself so you you know there will be some rich months and then maybe some lean months as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's I've made plenty of mistakes along the way, but I will say that I had a pretty good idea going into the freelance life, what that was going to look like. Um, and I was certainly not envisioning, you know, a Corvette and a dream home. So, you know, that sounds really negative and depressing and I guess it can be sometimes, but there's a huge amount of satisfaction that comes from chasing a story that you actually care about, you know, and that will float you farther than you think. Look what fun you had in your trailer, you know? Exactly. I mean, that's the fun's where you find it and what you're, where you make it. Exactly. So, 
Well, long range, when you if there are moments where you are able to think past the current project and think 20 years down the road, yeah. do, you, do you envision yourself being on the road and doing this sort of work all the time? Or do you think there may come a point where you say, maybe it's time to sit, get back to the university setting and, and teach writing or something along that line? I mean, I would never say never to any of those things. Um, I mean, I do think teaching would be fun someday. There's also a part of me that likes the idea of this on again, off again. You know, if I could write a new book every two or three years and then fill in the gaps with freelance work, like that seems like a pretty ideal life to me. The way to make it more ideal is to ensure that the book projects bring in a little more pay each time, that those contracts look a little better each time, that the magazine work nets a little more each time. And certainly not something you can count on, but freelancing is kind of, um, you know, there's a snowball effect going on there. One story leads to the next, you know, you get a little bit more each time. So hopefully that just gets better. And the fascinating range of stories you've been able to cover. I mean, it's looking through your website. It's like, oh, that's an interesting story. This is completely different. And this is completely different from that one. So it's anything but the the day-to-day of the Statehouse reporter you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, yeah, I really think so. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, landing as a staff writer at the Omaha World Herald and being able to cover both like a deep environmental story and fly to Elko, Nevada and cover the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. <laughs> you know, like the range of what I've been able to pursue as a freelancer is, I guess, pretty astonishing when you look Absolutely. at it that way. Well, as I mentioned, I want to make sure you get a chance to uh, to share the the website. So where, how can people find uh, your work? Yeah, uh, www.carsonvaughn.com. It's hours of great reading, absolutely. So uh, it's always a pleasure catching up with you, and we uh, hope that we'll keep in touch as the new book project comes along and we'll continue reading everything that comes in between. Well, thanks very much, Rick. I really appreciate it. Our guest today on Campus Voices, freelance writer, author, publisher, editor, teacher, Carson Vaughn, a graduate of the College of Journalism and Mass Communications here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This has been Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway. As always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln. Lincoln.